spoke on but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness some for those of you that were here it was matthew 6 33 and i had been talking to stephen over the last couple of weeks uh well texting to him forth and i just felt that i wanted to do another bit of this message really um it's just it's a word i think i said this the last time i was here it's a word that i just cannot get away from I've been studying uh, almost nothing else in the last probably 18 months or so uh, in terms of what I've been teaching on. Um, Although that's not completely true, I have taught in some other things. But this this portion of scripture for me, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, has just blown me away over the last while. And I just want to really take the verse that we looked at and drill down into a little bit. Uh, and the, the last day we were here, we spoke about but seek first and why it was important that that was the, the most important thing in our lives was that we sought God in everything first and foremost. But today I want to drill down a little bit into but seek first his kingdom and seek first his righteousness because there's so much teaching. You've probably read a lot of stuff around kingdom. You probably are familiar with a lot of stuff around righteousness. And yes, there's various different types of righteousness in scripture. And really, I want to share more than teach this morning. I really want to share what this has come to mean to me. And really where I am in my own walk and my own theology. Uh, because I think personally I've developed uh, in that regard, uh, certainly over the last year. And I just want to sort of share some of that stuff with you here this morning. And the thing about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God uh, is really, it's a, it's a hard concept to understand. But the idea of the kingdom of God, it's a phrase that we've all used. Kingdom of heaven, incidentally, is an interchangeable thing from kingdom of God. It depends which gospel you're reading. So the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, kingdom living, kingdom. Whenever Jesus talks about the kingdom, what does that mean? And what does it mean to us? And the kingdom of heaven is really, in its most simplistic form, is heaven on earth. Okay, so it's what we experience of God in the here and now. And R.T. Kendall actually refers to the kingdom of God being the rule of the unquenched spirit in the life of the believer. Okay, so see it as anointing. See it as the elusive will of God, if you like. See it as the power of the Holy Spirit. And anybody knows my background, you'll know I've been a Pentecostal my entire life. Uh, I was born into an Elam church, still attend an Elam church, have been in leadership within Elam churches. Not going to say anything about Elam church, I'm just saying I've been Pentecostal my entire life. But in recent times, I have felt God really challenging me yet again in this whole area of holiness. Now, I'm not saying that as Pentecostal churches we don't do holiness, because of course, we should and we do. But I've been reading a biography just over the last couple of days on Smith Wigglesworth. Anybody heard of Smith Wigglesworth? I'm sure many people have. And Smith Wigglesworth was a holiness stroke Pentecostal preacher. And in fact, Wigglesworth was involved in part, partly involved with the, the introduction of Elam across the UK, actually, believe it or not. But uh, he wasn't involved in the leadership of that at all, but he was in many of the Elam churches in the early days, preaching and teaching in them. But it's this idea of holiness and kingdom, okay? And I was just sitting thinking as I was sitting there this morning, and often whenever, sometimes, you know, coming to a church when you're teaching, it's hard to enjoy the service I did this morning, but 
I don't know about the rest of these, but my brain never switches off and it really doesn't switch off in that hour before I'm about to teach. I was just sitting there this morning and I was just thinking, do you know what, as Pentecostals, okay, as Pentecostals, if we could get the balance of Pentecostalism and holiness right, I actually think we could turn the world upside down because the modern day church across the West, holiness is something that we've slipped back from. In other words, our life and no, we don't live under law. We love, live under grace, but that doesn't mean we can get into what's called antinomianism, which means we can live however we like and still be saved. And I don't want to get into the theology of that, but I'm telling you that if we can get into kingdom living as taught in the Sermon on the Mount, if we can get into that and actually recognize and realize that that there is the open door to the power and the Holy Spirit and the unquenched spirit, and the rule, and us turning the world upside down, then should we not strive for that? And so whenever we look at Jesus' teaching in Matthew 6.33, whenever he says, but seek first his kingdom, the rule of the unquenched spirit in the life of the believer, and his righteousness, whatever that means, and we'll look at that a wee bit this morning, and all these things will be added unto you. And I don't know about you, but the older that I get and I'm getting that little bit older, the older that I get, I start to think, do you know what? There's not actually that much that really matters other than what we've been called to do for Christ and God here in this earth. But yet our time is so absorbed with so many other wasteful things. Would we agree with that? And in this day and age that we live in, oh my goodness, isn't our time being sucked into every avenue? You know, do we get frustrated now if we have to watch the ads on TV? <laughs> yeah. Do we start watching programs half an hour late now so that we can fast forward through the adverts? You see the type of thing I'm talking about here. Life is just at a serious pace. And so, in terms of the Sermon on the Mount, let me keep an eye on the time. In terms of the Sermon on the Mount, that is Jesus' doctrine on the Holy Spirit. Okay, and I, I may have said that the last time I was here, and you sort of think, okay, there's a big theme running through the Sermon on the Mount, and the theme is the kingdom of heaven. The theme is righteousness. The theme is reward in heaven. The theme is holy living. Would you agree with that? There's some really tough stuff in there. There's verses in there that we don't really like. Because that is what Jesus is actually teaching on. So how it's broken down, and I'm not going to go through, you'd be glad to know the 111 verses in the Sermon on the Mount this morning. But it's broken down that Jesus gets up and he teaches and he makes eight statements, Beatitudes, and that's his text. And then whenever you go through the rest of that, you will see where Jesus takes his text and he opens it up, opens it up, and he teaches on it throughout the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And then when we get to halfway through chapter seven, he starts to make some applications, just like a good preacher does, yeah? Text, teach, here's what you need to do, all right? And that's what Jesus did. And so this morning, I really just want to look at this sort of kingdom bit, which is relevant to us, and righteousness, which is relevant to us, and see if I can somehow, I don't know, encourage you to maybe look at this in a different light. Go home and read Matthew 5, 6, 7 in the context of what we're talking about and see if there's stuff that we can each get from it. 
And I'm not the expert by no means on it, and there's been many books written on it. But Jesus starts in terms of the kingdom, in terms of righteousness, when he opens his mouth there and he's teaching the disciples, remember, okay? He's teaching the disciples, but we know that other people are listening, followers of him, but it's the disciples that he is talking to, his own immediate followers, and he starts by saying what? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he introduces the concept straight away in his opening sentence. And very often as believers, and if you're like me and you've been around church many, many years, decades, some people's newly saved, fantastic. That's what I just love about church. Can you imagine in any other sphere in the world where a group of people like this would come together as family? Which is just fantastic, by the way. I just love it. However, Jesus starts by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. And the idea of the poor in spirit is that Jesus is saying that you have to recognize instantaneously and straight away that you're nothing without him. Absolutely nothing. We must come broken before him. Broken before him. It's the idea that whenever we think that somehow within ourselves we're good enough, actually that is pride. And pride is in every last one of us. Pride is where actually we know better than God. And, and we may not think that that happens in our lives, but very often it does, particularly when it comes maybe to suffering and the likes of things like that. Whenever we start to question God, we're sort of saying, God, I know better. And the idea is that whenever we come before God, whenever we recognize that blessed are the poor in spirit, whenever we know that we are absolutely nothing without him, we need to start at that place of complete brokenness before him Knowing that within ourselves, we cannot do it. Paul says that when I am weak, then he is strong. We can all quote these verses till the cows come home, but we don't actually really believe them. And if we can get up each and every day and recognize that we are nothing without God, then that's the starting point for the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven, as I've said, is... Jesus' doctrine on the Holy Spirit. That is heaven and earth. That is God coming to be with me here on earth. That is the power and the righteousness of the Holy Spirit at work in my life. And Jesus says straight away that if you can start in that location of knowing that you're nothing, actually your inheritance, you'll be blessed, you'll be happy as a result of this because you will start at that place of actually recognizing the Holy Spirit relevance in your life. And so often as Pentecostals, we see it slightly different than that. And I'm not having to go with the Pentecostals because that's what I am. I will never be anything else. But I'm telling you that very often as Pentecostals, we see it as a quick fix. We see it as a microwave society. We see it as sitting in the front row, getting prayed for, falling over, and somehow turning the world upside down. No, 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 no. Yes, it's important. Yes, the Holy Spirit can turn up. Yes, he can turn churches upside down in an instant. But I'm telling you that this world will not be turned upside down unless we carry the anointing of the Holy Spirit with us. And do you think that manifest presence of the Holy Spirit, the kingdom of God is going to go with us if we're dirty vessels? Do you think so? Not a chance. And it's a message that we have forgotten. If we can be worthy vessels and carry the anointing and the presence of God in and on us, then this world would be changed without us even opening our mouths. 
I'm reading this biography in Smith Wigglesworth and Smith Wigglesworth would have went in and sat down somewhere, not opened his mouth and people got down on their knees beside him. Not because he was special, but the God that he created, sorry, not the God that he carried within his being was special. The manifest presence of God was so strong in his life that people couldn't even sit in his presence. People who were at church went into prayer meetings with him and had to leave. They couldn't actually sit in the same room as him when he was praying because of the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the weight of God in that room. Wow. And you know, whenever we think of things like that and understand why, and he was just a plumber. Not that there's anything wrong with being a plumber. Very useful sometimes. He was just a plumber from Bradfield, Bradford in England. There's not anything wrong with that. That's not the point I'm making. This guy, he was completely uneducated. He didn't learn to read and write until he was in his 20s. He worked in a mill from when he was seven years old because they had to support the family. It's amazing what God can do, isn't it? If you just give yourself to him. He never wrote a book. Never, he opened, pastored one church, never wrote a book, never went to Bible college, learned to read and write in his 20s but turn the world upside down. And so Jesus then says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And this mourning piece is something, again, I think we've missed, not missed necessarily at the start of our Christian walk, but on the daily basis thing. Because when you look at the Sermon on the Mount, you look at the model prayer, and Jesus says, pray this and pray it regularly. The model prayer about asking for forgiveness, yeah? As forgive me as I forgive others. And so Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. And there's two pictures within that mourning piece. And the first picture is this, that there is a greater recognition of the sin that is in our lives. Each and every day. Now, that sort of flies in the face of some people who believe in sinless sinless perfection. And I know if you've studied holiness, you will understand that the birthplace of the holiness movement potentially got to that place of what was known as eradication or sinless perfection. I do not believe in sinless perfection. I believe that we can get closer to God. I believe that sin that bothers me the day may not have bothered me yesterday. Why? Because there was a bigger sin in my life yesterday. And it's the idea of sanctification. So we, we better theology here. So in the day we get saved, that is regeneration. Okay? Regeneration, salvation, born again justification by faith alone. Do we all agree with that? There's nothing we can do to earn it. It's not about good works in any way whatsoever. Justification by faith alone is salvation, regeneration. From that point on, sanctification. Would anybody like to disagree with the fact that sanctification right there is the good work stuff? Right there is the Sermon on the Mount stuff, that progressive sanctification, that striving towards God, yeah? And so each and every day, whenever we get up and Jesus said, pray this way, teach us in the Sermon on the Mount, forgive me as I forgive others, simplistically. Jesus is saying, no, actually, you need to get up and think what's going on in your life and try and turn away from it. And it's the idea of repentance. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. Whenever he said, blessed are those who mourn, is the idea that what we recognize in our lives today, we maybe didn't recognize yesterday, and we turn away from it and we strive towards God and we don't see other people's sin. All right, we're very good at that, aren't we? And what does Jesus say later on in the Sermon on the Mount? Deal with the, what does he say? The plank in your own eye before you deal with a speck in someone else's eye. Why? Because whenever Jesus gives us text, he then unpacks it in the following hundred odd verses. 
And it's interesting to note that the further that you go along in that path of sanctification, you'll actually start to recognize that actually we are, we're back to the first one, and we are nothing without God because you realize that we're filthy sinners. And whenever you study the Apostle Paul in Scripture, it's interesting to note that in 1 Corinthians, he talks about himself as being the least of the apostles. And in 13 years later, whenever he's talking to Timothy in 1 Timothy, he refers to himself as the worst of sinners. Now, did Paul change in that in-between time other than get closer to God, would we suggest? But in getting closer to God and getting closer to the light of God, he recognized the filth in his life. And so whenever Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, he's saying actually each and every day, it's this idea of holiness. It's this idea of actually getting your lives worthy to carry the anointing of the Holy Spirit so that whenever you go somewhere, that you carry me with you before you even speak. And there's another thing going on there whenever Jesus talks about mourning, he talks, and it's the idea of suffering. We don't like suffering. You probably haven't heard a lot of teaching and suffering over the decades. Suffering is a, a big theme throughout Scripture, a massive theme. You just have to look at James, Jesus' half-brother in his first chapter, and James says, what does he say? Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of every kind. James, are you nuts? The half-brother of Jesus? Consider pure joy? doesn't say you get up in the morning and look for trouble, but he says whenever you face trouble, see, in this world you will have trouble. Take heart, for I have overcome the world. It's the idea that we recognize what is going on in the sanctification process. We recognize what suffering is actually doing. And whenever we live that life of sacrifice, submission, and suffering, we actually become the people that God needs us to be so that we can carry the kingdom of God with us wherever we go. Very often, whenever we face a situation and a circumstance, and don't get me wrong, I know people go through some terrible things, and I'm not knocking that, and people need help and assistance and prayer and counsel, and all of that is important. But we have to recognize that we cannot say in one breath that we know that God's got it if the next breath we're complaining about what it is that God's got. Yeah? And if you look back in your life over 5, 10, 15, 20 years and look at some of the difficult circumstances that you had in your life, is it possible to recognize that you can see now the hand that God had on you? But yet, whenever we're in the thick of it today, we sort of think, ah, I'm not getting it, God. What about this? What about that? Those will be comforted. You'll be comforted by the Holy Spirit. That's the kingdom piece again. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Meekness. It's one of those ones where you, if you think you're meek, the minute you think it, you've lost it. So if you ask somebody, are you meek? Ah, hmm. Am I meek? Yes. Oh, it's gone. No. Ah, it's there for another day or two. No. Meekness. What is meekness? It's one of those really, really tough things. I'm not going to get into it this morning. We could talk in each, any one of these for the, the whole sermon, by the way. But meekness. It's best to look at meekness when you look at actually examples from Scripture around meekness. There was two people in Scripture where it talks about meekness. The first one we should all know is Old Testament. Moses was known as the humblest man that ever walked the face of the earth. There's a verse in there somewhere about it. The interesting thing, why was Moses meek? I think that's 
the best way to look at this. Why was Moses meek? And think about this in terms of kingdom. Think about this in terms of the theme of what we're talking about here this morning. And I'm telling you now that Moses was meek whenever he stood in the gap for the one and a half million people that complained about him. Think about it. He was the pastor of the biggest moaning church on the planet. And they complained non-stop, yeah? Why did you not just let us die in Egypt? Many of us would have said, okay, go back to Egypt, yeah? Stop moaning. I'm just thinking how Moses may have felt, but, it, but he didn't. And many a time their moaning was so bad that God was going to wipe them out. But Moses, what did Moses do? This is the point of meekness. This is the point that I'm talking about and the theme that we're talking about here this morning is that Moses stood in the very gap for the people who opposed him and he cried out to God, no God, save them, don't destroy them. And God backed down every time. Why? Because Moses was so meek that he knew that he had to stand in the gap for the very people who opposed him. Keep that thought in your mind because we'll get back to that in a second. That's so, so important. And we also see in Scripture that Jesus referred to himself as meekness as, as being meek as well. And, and look, I think it is. And the example of Jesus is that Jesus was so approachable. You know, you sort of think that Jesus, uh, in terms of what the religious people of the day, they were expecting this mighty Messiah. He was the mighty Messiah, but in their minds, they were expecting some sort of a royalty, some sort of a chariot of fire thing. But Jesus was this humble guy, Yeah. And I suppose in earthly terms, the idea of impressing people would have been the thing that maybe would have worked for the others. But yet, no, it was approachability that made Jesus meek. That's important for us because the lepers of the day, the prostitutes of the day, the tax collectors of the day, the hated in society of the day felt that they could approach Jesus. Yes, he told them the truth. Yes, he taught them in love. He did all of those things which are important, but the meekness was the fact that he was approachable to all. And I wonder in this modern day and age where we live, in church, in their social circles, in your workplaces, are we the approachable ones? Do we have that big judgmental look on our face? Or are we approachable? You know, I think you hear it often, we need to be open to everybody. James talks about it as well in chapter 2 about the, the tramp coming into the church. You know, what, what would we do? Genuinely? You know, I, I think there's two sides to this coin. I think that as a church, we actually need to start standing up more vociferously to things that are going on. Genuinely, because it's starting to absorb the church. You know the type of things that I'm talking about here. And as a church, it's so easy just to become blasé, isn't it? But this is the important piece. I think for too long, for too many decades in this country, people have stood up in the way that has been harsh, that has been unloving, uncaring, has been judgmental, and it's extreme. And I'm telling you, there's nothing wrong for st with standing up for the truth. Didn't Jesus do it? But yet every one of those people felt that they could approach Jesus. Why? Because they knew that he loved them regardless of what they'd done. And that right there is the meekness piece. And Jesus is saying that if you can be meek like this, you will inherit the earth. 
inheriting the earth. And that sort of also flies in the face of modern theology, modern health and wealth theology. That's another thing that's starting to become more of a bugbear to me, is some of the teaching that we're hearing on television and elsewhere. I don't see it in Scripture. I really don't. And I'm not, I'm not here to talk about that this morning, but I'm here to say that we need to be approachable. What was next? Jesus turns his attention to righteousness now. And he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. What's our target verse say? Matthew 6, 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added on to you. And in his fourth beatitude, his fourth verse that he lays down in terms of starting to preach and teach from his text, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for theirs, so for they will be fed. And you sort of think, right, okay, hunger and thirst, right in there is the key, is that if we don't get sustenance, the metaphor is not one that Jesus just throws out there as a nice metaphor. It's true in the sense that if we don't do this kind of thing, you're not going to survive it. Because if we don't get food, if we don't get water, if we don't get sustenance that we need to survive and live, we will not survive. Would you agree with that? Yeah? And so Jesus is actually saying, blessed or happy or approved or anointed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be fed. And that righteousness very often can be confused because there is lots of types of righteousness in Scripture. And again, I'm not going to take the time to go into all of that this morning, but there's righteousness, which is part of the regeneration process, becoming a Christian. There's righteousness, which would be moral justices of this world and standing up for people who cannot stand up for themselves. So important for the churches to do that as well. There's just there's righteousness in there would be things like tithing and attending church and all of those things. But that is not what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying also that the type of righteousness that we're talking about is the righteousness between you and God. It's linked into that meekness thing because he also says in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, do not do your righteousness in front of others like the Pharisees do. In other words, you don't want to stand up there and say, look at me, look at what I'm doing, look how big a Christian I am, look how what I can do, blah, 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 blah. Jesus said, no, this is all about what your attitude is between me and you and how you're willing to serve me regardless of the credit or whatever the outcome is for you, that you're going to do this anyway. And it's a whole idea in the, in, the, in the teaching as well that, you know, you don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. And, and all of that teaching there is this idea of this specific righteousness that Jesus is teaching about. And he's actually teaching here about the idea of having such a desire for God that you're desperate without him, that you cannot live without him, and that you have such an intense desire to please him. That's what this righteousness is. And the broad theme of the Sermon on the Mount is that in everything that we do, we have that intense desire to please God in all we do. And bear in mind that the Beatitudes are also stepping stones. They were born builds upon the previous. And so is it possible that you and I can leave here today and say, yes, I have an intense desire to please the Father in everything that I do. You know what? I'm not so sure we could. Yeah, maybe at some level we have, or maybe on a Sunday we have. I'm being, I'm being sort of facetious now, but I'm trying to make my point. 
But do we have that intense desire to please the Father in every aspect or area of our lives? There are many aspects and areas of our lives. And so, Jesus then turns his attention to blessed are the merciful. Now, I really want, I'll read a couple of extra verses about this one this morning because I really want to ram this home today. If anything has challenged me in the last year, it's the next aspect of what I'm going to teach you this morning. And see it in the context of kingdom. See it in the context of righteousness. And Jesus now turns his attention to say, right, okay, we've just talked about your heart's condition, yeah? We've just talked about, and those first four points that we looked at there, we've just talked about your state, where you're at, but now we're going to look at it in a practical sense. Jesus said, now we're going to see if you actually mean what you're saying. We're actually going to see if we have that intense desire to please the Father here. Because Jesus now says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And the idea of showing mercy in Scripture is that idea of actually the process of forgiveness. And it's a big theme as well. Jesus teaches, again, the model prayer, forgive me as I forgive others. He goes on to reiterate it after the sermon and says, if you don't do it, I ain't doing it. Serious stuff. And very often we just wash over it, don't we? Very often we just sort of, oh, don't want to read those verses because, or I don't have an issue with somebody. I'm telling you right now, I'm going to challenge every last person here. Don't put your hand up. I don't want to see your hand. But I'm telling you right now that the chances are that every person in this room at some point this week is going to have a problem with somebody else. All right? And I'm not saying that that's not human life. But what I'm saying is that if we don't deal with it, we don't get on top of it, then actually that's what Jesus is talking about here. And if you, if someone hurts you or says something about you or purposely does something to bother you or just is that person who bothers you, and we all know, it's very often whenever you pray for patience in life that God gives you somebody in your workplace that you really need to show patience for because that's how God answers your prayer sometimes. Whenever you say, God, give me faith, God says, okay, I'll give you a situation for, for faith. God, give me patience and he'll give you the, He'll give you a work colleague from hell. Because <laughs> that's, how, that's how he does it. Careful what you ask for. <laughs> but, so, if you're not prepared to deal with a situation and a scenario like that in your life, I'm going to read some verses in a second because they're really, really, really important. But if you're not prepared to do that, you're actually showing God how much you don't want God. What's, his, what's the previous one? Intense desire to please the Father. Blessed are those who are hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be fed. Yeah, they will be given that righteousness. And, Je and you, now Jesus is saying, blessed are the merciful. So if you actually are not prepared to step away from a scenario or a situation like that, then you're actually showing God how much you don't want them. You're not actually showing an individual a problem. You've heard this teaching before that if you have an issue with someone else, it doesn't really affect them. It affects you. RT teaches lots on this. I don't know if you're into books by RT Kendall, but he teaches around this whole forgiveness thing massively. And if, you, if you've been up at Wondrous in years gone by, you'd have heard him teaching on this actually, I think in his Bible studies, where he did a whole series on forgiveness. And so the idea is that if you want to show God how much you want God, then this is an area that you need to deal with. 
Now, if we can get some verses up here. Um, Ephesians 4, 29. Now, look this up, please, because this is so important. I really felt God challenging me in this earlier this year as well. Is it God on the phone? No? You're only allowed to answer it if it's God on the phone. Okay, now listen. This is so, so, so important. And if you don't remember anything else, and I'm going to wrap it up soon, but if you don't remember anything else, I am teaching you this morning, please remember these next four verses. Mark them in your Bible. Go home and meditate on them because these verses are so, so, so important. Ephesians 4, 29, Paul speaking to the church in Ephesus, and he says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up. Okay, now I'm going to pause a couple of times through these four verses, because how often do we get drawn in to unwholesome talk about others? Just leaving that for you there for a second. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Verse 30. One of the most important verses in Scripture, I believe, in the New Testament. Now, there's lots of important verses. I'm not saying that some of them should be removed. I'm saying this here verse is so, 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 so important. Because... Paul said to the church, based on what we've just read in 29, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed. Okay, so this is to the church. Would you accept that? With whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, you would accept that Paul is talking to each, the church in Ephesus, but each and every one of us by result of the fact that we are here today. And Jesus, or sorry, Paul is saying, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed. Verse 31 is frightening. Get rid. This is how you grieve the Holy Spirit. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. I promise you, I am not here to have a go at anybody today. But This right here is the chief way that each one of each of us in this room this morning can grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Now, we all have our different theological points of view on grieving the Holy Spirit. We'll not get into the teaching of that this morning. But this right here is something that should really rock us here this morning. And link this to kingdom, link this to righteousness, link this to the type of thing that I'm talking about if we could get holiness and Pentecostalism lined up. And I'm not having a go because each of us, I guarantee you, could probably put our hand up here right now and think of someone that we're better against potentially. We're angry, malice. One more verse, verse 32, tells us what we should be. But be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ, and is in, as in Christ, God forgive you. What does Jesus teach on the Sermon on the Mount whenever we're praying? What does Jesus teach? He says, forgive others as I've forgiven you. If you don't do it, I ain't doing it. There's a lot of hyperbole in there. But the point is, 
If Jesus is teaching throughout the Sermon on the Mount, if he's teaching that there's a big theme here of kingdom living, if he's teaching that there's a theme of righteousness, and there's a teaching that there's the way that you can grieve the Holy Spirit is about having a bitterness in your life towards someone, whether that's someone in work, whether it's someone that you live with, whether it's someone in your street, whether whoever it happens to be, whether it's somebody that you haven't met in 30 years, whether it's somebody that you met yesterday, I'm telling you right now that this idea that we're talking about here has nothing to do with the individual. Yes, there may be stuff in place where you need to go to people and that you can do that through church. But I'm telling you right now that if you hold on to this yourself, you are grieving the Holy Spirit of God and therefore you will not live kingdom lives. Yes, you're saved. Yes, you'll probably go to heaven. And let's not get into the theology of that either. But do you want to live being a worthy vessel of carrying the Holy Spirit in your life or not? And this is tough. I'm telling you, have you, if you've heard me here three or four times, you'll know that I'll not come and give you something that tickles your ears. But I'll also not come here and teach you something that I don't learn from or try to learn from myself. You know, when there's some more teaching in there, the next one is blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. For they will what? They will see... God. Blessed is the pure in heart. Do you know what that is right there? And again, time's gone, so I'm not going to get into these. I'm not going to drill down into them, but pure in heart. Sometimes people have used that verse as believing in eradication or sinless perfection. No, 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 no. Pure in heart. Whenever you read about your heart in scripture, it's about who you are. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? He says, you commit adultery in your heart. It talks about that what, uh, where your heart is, there your, right? When I'm talking about money and stuff like that there, when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount. And so the pure in heart is actually those who are sold out to God. So two Beatitudes ago, we talked about having an, an intense desire to please the Father, which was the righteousness of God in this regard. Then Jesus turns his attention and says, you can't have bitterness or malice in any way in your life. You have to be merciful to everybody no matter what. And then he says, you need to be sold out to me. What did D.L. Moody say 150 years ago? This world has yet to see one man completely sold out for God. Whenever I've been reading this biography over the last couple of days of Smith Wigglesworth, I see someone who came pretty close. And yes, he's just a man. The point that I'm making is that if we can get to that place and he lived that holy life, Smith Wigglesworth. If we can get to that place where we can genuinely say that we are sold out to God and all of the previous steps we try our best to get in place, can you see how we start to carry the kingdom? We start to carry the anointing of the Holy Spirit in our lives and that backed up with the power of the Holy Spirit and the fact that we're Pentecostals and all of that. Could we turn our worlds upside down? Could we turn our families upside down? Could we turn our communities upside down? Jesus then says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Peacemakers, again, I don't have time to get into it. But do you know where you need to look at when we look at peacemakers? The unity of the church. Can you see the theme? Can you see the theme that we're talking about here? Can you see how important unity is within the church? You know the psalmist taught that where there is unity, 
God commands the blessing. And very often we pray about blessing. Very often we ask God to do X, Y, and Z. But God's saying the answers are all there. The elusive will of God is actually all there. It's there written for you. Live your life how I have taught you. 111 verses in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Live your life according to these verses as best as you can. And that right there is the elusive will of God. Yeah, because so many people pray for the will of God in their lives and it's written right there. Bunky says those who constantly seek the will of God are overrun by those who do it. And I'm not saying that it's wrong to pray about your future. I'm saying that in every day and age, if we can actually look at Jesus' own teaching in Scripture, backed up by the Apostle Paul and others, we can start to see what God is actually saying will turn the world upside down. Kingdom, righteousness. And I want to challenge you as well, right in there with the unity piece, is to start challenging disunity. And I'm not talking about having a fist fight at the door. There's processes. I remember as a little boy, and yes, I was little once. My dad has been an alien pastor for... I don't know, 100 years or something like that. He's retired now, but he's still alive. He's still an alien pastor. Apparently you're always, once an alien pastor, always an alien pastor. I don't know if that's true, but let's not go there today. The point is, whenever we were young, and I remember whenever we came home, and that was the one meal of the week that you usually sat around, I would imagine in most other families they had probably a bit of roast pasta for lunch. But in our house, we were not immune and we had roast Worship leader or roast somebody else, but see the minute we ever opened our mouth to talk about somebody in a negative way, my dad instantly closed it down. No criticism. And I remember at the time, as this height, this height, this height, thinking, seriously, dad, we're just having a bit of a yarn. But you, you never spoke back to my dad at that moment in time. That was not a good idea. But I tell you, I learned something from that. And I'm not, I'm not saying I'm not, oh my goodness. I'm not saying I can't get drawn into criticism. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying you, the more that I have been challenged about this portion of scripture over the last year, year and a half, whatever it happens to be, the more I feel strongly about actually as a church, we need to actually start standing up for all of this stuff. And actually, whenever we feel that we're slipping into that place of gossip dressed up as a prayer request, oh, that does my napper in, I'll tell you. I can tell you this because you can pray about it. Mm, yeah. Could be a genuine prayer request if it is. Forgive me for just saying that, but very often it's not. But the point is, challenge disunity. If somebody is getting something in the neck because of what they've done, or even if it's gentle, just say, look, guys, I don't think we should do this. Nobody will be offended by that. Come on, let's all start doing that kind of thing. You can see the theme that we're talking about here this morning. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And our final point, and I don't even know what time I got up, so forgive me. And it's, <laughs> it's one of those tough ones. If you think we haven't got a tough one out of the first seven there, by the way, the last one's really tough. <laughs> what is he, and he brings, he brings, Jesus brings kingdom and righteousness back together here in the one sentence. And what does he say? Blessed are those is it up here? No. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom.
Oh my goodness. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. Now, very often we see persecution as something that happens in maybe a developing country where they're so anti-Christian. And yes, that is absolutely persecution. But the more I read about the persecuted church, the more I read about these believers in the underground churches in China and places like that, they don't want to be delivered from persecution because they've got it. They understand what is actually going on and they will quite openly say, do not pray that God will deliver us from persecution because they recognize that that's right there is the kingdom stuff. And it's not that we get up tomorrow morning and look for persecution. It's not like we go looking for trouble, but it's the idea that if actually we are prepared to challenge stuff, we are prepared to stand up, we are prepared to do all of the things that we've looked at here this morning. And I know that in 45 minutes, we've had a big, very broad stroke across 111 verses and I challenge you to go home and study them for yourselves and I'm saying is that actually Jesus is saying this is as good as it gets this is my final point in my text before I teach is that blessed or anointed or happy are you if you're persecuted because of me if you're persecuted for righteousness sake what was righteousness again an intense desire to please the father so blessed are you if you're persecuted because of that, because yours is the kingdom of God. I don't know about you, but I'm interested in kingdom of God. I have made it so far away from that position. But yet, can we all challenge ourselves when we leave here this morning to say, do you know what? I agree with 5% of what that big fella up there said this morning. Do you know what? I could be wrong in some of this as well. Take, you know, go home and you talk to God. Yeah? You talk to God. You ask God what God says through those verses to you. Hopefully I've just brought some a focus on those verses for you this morning. Do you know what? I want to pray before I hand back. If you can, stand just as I pray. Heavenly Father, none of us are perfect. So far from it. We fall short every day, Lord. But yet, Lord, you're not looking for perfection. You're looking for those across this world today who have a desire to seek your face every day. We have a desire to seek you first, seek your kingdom, seek the power and anointing of the Holy Spirit and have an intense desire to please you in all that we do. Lord, forgive us when we fail each day. Forgive us, Lord, and help us not to sit down and say, oh, we've messed up, so we're not doing anything. Help us to recognize, Lord, that you are there helping us and giving us the strength that we need to carry on each day. And Lord, I just pray, Lord, that we can get this Pentecostalism stroke holiness thing in that perfect balance that you have uh, given to us through your word, Lord God, so that we can actually carry your anointing in such a way that the, this world will take notice. This world will recognize that the church has got something. This world and the, and the mess that it's in and this downward spiral towards hell that it's on, Lord, will recognize that the church has got something. Why? Because they're carrying 
a deposit of you. Lord, so often we think of marketing tools. Lord, so often we think of ways to reach the world. So often we think of gimmicks and nothing wrong with plans and programs. But Lord, I'm telling you, I recognize the fact that if we carried the Holy Spirit in abundance, we wouldn't need any marketing tool. Because whenever we carry the Holy Spirit out into the world, it's the Holy Spirit that changes lives and turns people around. Not us, not our words, not our fancy programs. But Lord, we recognize that it's you that changes people in this world. So Lord, help us each and every day to seek your kingdom, seek your righteousness. And Lord, we recognize that all these things will be added onto us as well. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray.